I was handed the clicker and then I lost it. It's in my pocket. No sleep. <laughs> I totally thought I lost it. I thought I feel so bad. Um, but I don't feel bad. That's how grace works, right? You get, you find mercy. All right. So, what did Jesus emphasize the most in his teachings? I was sitting at the feet of a minister, and that was the question he posed to us. What was the teaching that Jesus emphasized the most? And he turned it into a Q&A session where people raised their hands. Some said salvation, others said sin, others said money, others said hell. And mind you, I was following Jesus probably for a year and a half now, my first exposure. And I was interested, and I, and I was at my, the edge of my seat, like, what is the teaching he emphasized the most? I think I know. But now that you ask the question, I don't know. And so as he was sharing, he said the kingdom of God. That was what Jesus emphasized. That was the primary message of what he came to do. And he started to expound on it for the next 30, 40 minutes. And I just remember hearing him speak. And I was like, I don't get it. The dots weren't connecting for me. I'm like, well, what is he talking about that is completely different than what we've been doing? But there was an urgency in his voice. There was a like a fire, a fervor, like, man, I need you guys to understand the kingdom. I need you to come in the grips with the kingdom. I need you to see this so you can be radically transformed. And as he spoke for 40 minutes, sharing all the scriptures and the illustrations, I was like, the dots aren't connecting. I feel like he's speaking to people who are already on board with this. So after service, I approached him and I was like, hey, man, great message. Um, there seems to be a burden on your soul that you want to communicate to us. But I didn't get it, bro. And he's like, what didn't you understand? I shared with him all of it, man. I, I mean, follow Jesus is why we're all here. Like, why else would we be here? And then he, he shared something with me that I hadn't forgotten. He said, it is until your entire life is marked out by the way of Jesus do you truly understand the kingdom. And again, in that moment, I'm like, Self-awareness wasn't my friend at that season. I'm like, it is. It's all marked out by the way of Jesus. And he said, your relationships, your money, your leisure time, your politics, your vacation, your thoughts on violence, all of that needs to come under the submission and the lordship of Jesus. Now, mind you, I'm 22 years old at the time of this conversation. I'm like, I think we're on the same page. Well, I, I guess whatever. Little did I know that the Holy Spirit was going to take me on a journey for the next couple of years to understand. Even though I was sincere in my devotion when I made Jesus Lord in 2008 and I was dead serious about it, I didn't really understand what it meant to walk and be a member of the kingdom of God until the coming years. You know how it says in 1 Peter, grow up in your salvation. I need to grow up. It would be very similar to you guys explaining to my amazing son, two years old, Stephen, not the other one, Stephen, and say, this is what H2O is. He wouldn't get it. You'll be telling the truth, and he'd be like, I, I know what breathing is, and et cetera. That's how it felt for me. He said, as I was walking away, a radical commitment. He said, as I was walking away, after explaining to me life, this, that, 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 he said, also a radical commitment to using your freedom as a follower of Jesus to serve others in sacrificial love. He like, once you get that, then you get the burden I have going on. And I walked away and I was like, 
And then, you know, you talk to other people after a service. Like, what did you think of the message? I told them what I thought, and I told them about the follow-up conversation. And we were all young Christians. We were all like, whatever, dude, let's go get some pizza. And that was the end of that amazing message. But it weighed on me since then that every time I heard someone talk about the kingdom of God, I'm like, they're going to share this great burden. Now I feel like I've gotten it a little bit better. Like I mentioned earlier, why are we doing this? We're in the middle of a campaign season. Midterm elections. I'm not, I, I have zero intention ever to use this pulpit to endorse any candidate. That's just not the role, I think, of the minister to do that. However, I do want us to understand the formative nature of what's going on. Yeah. How many of you have seen the assault ads on either, either candidate? You just click on YouTube trying to figure out how to fix your toilet seat, and they're like blasting another candidate. They're like, this person's going to do this and this and this and this. And then you go to another YouTube video. Now my toilet seat is working, but now the other thing on top of it is making too much noise. How do you fix that? And then another candidate is getting blasted. All trying to fix your toilet seat. They are trying to form us intentionally. I'm getting emails from South Florida that who I need to vote for. I haven't lived there in over a year now, but they're telling me who I need to vote for and why. They're trying to form me. A quote from David Cozy. Each political ideology organizes itself around an ultimate commitment to some aspect of creation. In this sense, every ideology is religion, religious, even to the point of embodying some sort of redemptive narrative. And what is he trying to get at? You know, every every ideology out there, albeit political or even non-political ideology, when they attach, attach themselves to a redemptive story like this will make your life great. This will make your life whole. This will make your life complete. He is saying those sort of things in nature are religious because religion in since the beginning of time was always called to be the rendering of what made you whole. And politics is one of the most formative things in our season. And we, we, we've seen we've seen politics. Now I'm young. I'm not as young as I look. I'm older than I look, but I'm not young. We've seen politics in the last couple of years get really challenging. Like we've seen it divide families. You know, you don't want to be the, the, the Biden supporter in the Trump household and you don't want to be the Trump supporter in the Biden household. That caused a huge rift. We've seen how it's gotten, but the kingdom of God is supposed to be a set-apart community, a different community that could be able to live into that tension with gracious gratitude. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, beginning in um, verse 14 through 15. I love how Mark begins his gospel. It's very straightforward. Mark is a man of little words, and so that's why his gospel is only 16 chapters. It just seems like he just go through it, and I love it. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Very straightforward message. But I want us to understand one thing and one thing very clearly. That word gospel when it was used in the first century, wasn't a private spiritual word. It wasn't like that was the word you used to describe going to heaven. That wasn't the word you would have used. The word you would have used was resurrection or new creation. That's what you would have used if you're talking about heaven. When Jesus says, I got good news, the kingdom of God, everyone would have heard how charged politically those statements were. It would be me walking into America and say, hey, I got a new nation I'm about to start. 
all of you would say, I don't know if I want to be a part of your nation, Steve. You can't even go to bed at a reasonable time. <laughs> don't want to be a follower of a person who had bad sleep habits. You see, when, when Jesus was born, he entered a world that already had its own gospel. The good news of Caesar, the Roman Empire. The, the language is similar. If you do the research, the language is very similar with the, what the apostles used and what the Roman Empire was using. And they did that on purpose to help people understand that they were being called out of something and into something new. And so when we say Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, is Lord, we are using the same language they would have used for Julius Caesar. Not Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar. Here's some um, speakers from around the time of Augustus Caesar and very early in the time of Jesus. Pliny the Elder. The Roman peace, here's a quote from him. The Roman peace, Pax Romana, has a boundless grandeur, a peace which takes in not only men in different lands and tribes, but also mountains and peaks soaring in the clouds. Their offspring, even the plants, May this gift of the gods last, I pray forever. Truly, the gods seem to have given to the human race, the Romans, as it were a second sun in terms of the star. He is saying Rome is just this amazing place. It's welcoming. It's loving. It's amazing. All of you who have done any research on first century on Rome, you understand that that peace was actually bought at a price with the blood of a lot of people. There were a lot of people, Israel in particular, that was subjugated under the nation of the Roman, or, or under the empire of Rome. And yet Pliny is like, well, that, that really doesn't matter because big picture, here's what Rome has accomplished. Rome has accomplished this. Later, Aristides, another historian from the same period. Before the rule of Rome, before the rule of the Romans, the dregs came into to the surface and everything happened through blind chance. But since your appearance, Rome... Confusion and revolt have come to an end. Order has returned everywhere in everyday life. And in the state, there is clear light of day. Cities now gleam in splendor and beauty. The whole earth is arrayed like paradise. He's like, Rome is amazing. He loves Rome. Here's a decree about Caesar Augusta. The birthday of the most divine emperor is the fount of every public and private good. Justly would one take his day to be the beginning of the whole universe, the day Caesar Augustus was born. For when everything was falling into disorder, tending toward disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aspect, a new perspective. Justly, one takes this day to be the beginning of life. And of living for everyone the day Caesar Augustus was born. Now, we don't talk about, I don't think public, we don't talk about any of our politicians the way they just talked about Caesar Augustus. But you understand the worship of the emperor that's going down. Like, this guy's like, he's so amazing. Here goes Virgil, a friend of Augustus. He says, This is he whom so often you hear promised to you, Augustus Caesar, son of a god. Who shall again set up the golden age in lithium amidst the field where Saturn once reigned and shall spread the empire past Libya and India to the land that lies beyond the stars? He will live as a god and observe the heroes of ancient times. Walk, walking among the gods, they will behold him in amazement. Peace, will br- peace he will bring to the world, governing, governing it with the father's power. 
The goats themselves will come with udders full. No longer will herds of grazing cattle fear the lion. Even from the cradle sprouts a wreath of um, flattering flowers. The serpents will disappear. Harmful poisonous plants will vanish. The fields of Assyria will yield balsam in abundance. I don't even know what that word means. Now, offsprings of Jupiter, dear child, dear children of the divine, already come to, comes, to, comes the time. Assume the dignity sublime. See the heavy burden the world convulse and heave. Lands and seas, breath alike, the depths of the heavens. See how they will rejoice at the golden age of Augustus. That's a good friend right there, right? Like, no one ever writes a card about you that way. <laughs> I would feel massively uncomfortable if someone wrote that. I was like, that's kind of blasphemy right there. But anyhow, his friend did it for him, and that's okay. Um, Caesar, here's a, an inscription found on a building in, in Ephesus in the 4th century B.C., from 4th century B.C. Caesar, the God manifest, the universal savior of human life, land and sea. Have peace. The cities flourish in harmony with abundance of food. There is an abundance of good things. People are filled with happy hopes for the world because of Caesar Augusta. That's the world that Jesus started proclaiming good news in. It sounded like they already had good news. They're like, we're in Rome, Pax Romana. It is as good as it's going to get. Jesus walks into this world and he proclaims good news. He proclaims the good news that doesn't disadvantage anyone but lifts up everyone. You see, when, when, when Augustus Caesar took the throne, Mark Anthony had to die. There was no way Augustus Caesar would have taken the throne without Mark Anthony dying and without everyone who aligned themselves with Mark Anthony dying. When Augustus Caesar took the throne, he decided that certain places were going to pay more taxes than the Roman Empire was going to pay more taxes because he wanted to make sure people closest to him were happy. When Jesus came into the kingdom, he said, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. The greatest among you will be servants. That was so countercultural. You see, Rome's peace. I could have pulled up a whole bunch of quotes, but we don't have any. I don't want to spend any more time on this, on how many other people criticized Rome for what they did to their families during the time of the um, reign of Caesar. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. If you're maybe, maybe I know what some of you skeptical people are thinking. I, 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 and, I, and I count myself among your members as a skeptic. Rome was, did a lot of bad things. 40% of their population was in slavery. They taxed people and they allow people like tax collectors to harm a whole bunch of people. But Christianity is not, not Christianity has a checkered pass. As a very checkered past. So what you're saying about Rome, we can easily say about Christianity. You know, our favorite two, the Crusades and the Inquisition. You know, Christianity done some horrible things. People were perpetuating some of the worst forms of human oppression and violence in the name of Jesus. If you saw me driving down the road and you saw my car ruined, I got my emergency lights on, it's flashing. You walk up to me because you're a good Samaritan. You want to help me. And, you know, I'm telling you that this car is junk. It, it did harm. It didn't help me. And you're like, man, it seems like a relatively new car. I don't know what's going on. The manufacturer is just, it was built to fail me. You, you know, you do your little circle around and then you sit back and say, is that water in your gas tank? And I say, absolutely. And then you say, it isn't actually the manufacturers who failed you. It was you. You're the one who put the water in a situation that wasn't supposed to have water. Or even worse, if I put vegetable oil in my car. Oh, 
I probably wouldn't even run. I don't know. I would never even try that. I don't have enough money to make that kind of mistake. (laughs) So why do I share that? A lot of the people who did the Inquisitions, who did the Crusades, they were wearing the banner of Christ, but they were not representing him faithfully. They were acting out of turn of what it meant to follow Jesus. You see, Christianity, unique in the Roman Empire and really all other ideologies, in my opinion, at its foundation is built to recalibrate itself toward the good. I could start to veer left, veer left, veer left because I hold myself accountable to the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus, because I allow the spirit to be an inner witness. If I, you know, we, and this is going to sound interesting for those of you who are not thinking about the spirit, but there is a time where my conscience pricks me. It could feel right on the surface for everyone, but for me personally, it didn't feel right. That's the spirit pricking me to say something is off here with how you're doing things, even if it looks right on the surface to everyone else. So we have Jesus' example, Jesus' teaching. We have the working of the um, spirit. Then we have the communal practices of worship and reading collectively. A lot of you guys read the scriptures in here. A lot of you guys meditate on the scriptures. A lot of us come together and worship. If I start to veer left, many of you will call me back. You'll be like, that isn't of Christ. That isn't the way of Jesus. What are you doing? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life? We can't follow you. We can only follow Jesus. And then we have the incredible example of the anti-Nicene um, church, church leaders. Their example of nonviolence and non-manipulative ways of bringing the kingdom. That's what makes Christianity completely different than the Roman Empire and any empire after. The foundation of Christianity is built to recalibrate itself toward the good. The only tools Christians are permitted to use to persuade are love, personal example, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, and if need be, martyrdom. But we never persuade anyone by force. We never manipulate anyone. That is not the way of Jesus. We never pound anyone into submission. That is not the way of Jesus who gave him life, his life for others. Believe. You know, the difference between what John was doing at the River Jordan and what Jesus was doing, John was teaching about the kingdom. He told people to repent, but Jesus said believe. That was the primary difference between their two messages. Jesus called the followers to believe. You see, Mark is under the impression that Jesus' ministry is now inaugurating the kingdom, and people needed to believe that, that it started here and now. So what is the gospel, according to Jesus, in the opening scene to Mark? It pertains to the completion of time, the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. Perhaps the most important thing to notice, however, is that Jesus himself is at the center of his own message. Mark begins his gospel with, I'm going to tell you the good news of the Christ. And as he proclaims this kingdom, he's like, I'm the Christ proclaiming the very message that the fullness of times have come. He's the anointed king who will rule one day. And so when he calls Israel and his hearers and us later in the future to follow him, he summons us the way a prophet summons people to turn around and return to God. He calls Israel to abandon um, its whole way of life and trust in a different one, now characterized by his way. A new era has dawned. The rule of God was imminent. And that's what he was calling people to. So participants were inspired to repent, not because, not necessarily because their sins compelled them to, but because God was fulfilling his promise that he was going to bring his kingdom, his rule and reign presently here on earth. 
you see, belief is one of those statements that need to be unpacked. Today, belief means mental assent, generally speaking. Like, I believe that. In the first century and the centuries really up until the Reformation movement, belief always it was circled around in body practices. Now belief is like creeds and credo things. Like I believe these things, which I'm not saying are bad things. But belief needs to be embodied. Here's a quote from Nijagunde. It's a longer quote, but I thought it was important. I was going to try to splice it up, but I decided I was tired. So we're going to take the whole quote. All right. Faith in Mark's gospel is not merely one virtue among others. In the Markan narrative, it is the all-embracing term that describes the moral and ethical life of those who embrace the kingdom of God. Faith is perceiving and understanding where the lack of faith is blindness and incomprehension. Those who believe, perceive, and understand what Jesus says and does can see the presence of God's kingdom in his ministry, even though the manifestation of the kingdom is presently hidden and seemingly insignificant. Convinced that the kingdom of God is present, Although not yet in power, such people live lives of discipleship and community of disciples gathered around Jesus. Within Mark's gospel, people believe in order to see. What is Nijagum to get in that? That faith is embodied. Faith is something that we practice. You know, when we follow Jesus, it sounds scandalous to say this, especially here in this country. Jesus needs our faithful allegiance more than any other relationship and certainly before before any other nation. Which is crazy. Like, can you imagine if I put up here, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who be deeply offended by that and their followers of Jesus. They'll be like, nah, don't play with the, the political and Jesus. Like, we need to separate church and state. That is not how our first century brothers and sisters thought about the world. They saw Jesus Lord of everything. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Faith is embodiment. Allegiance in his book is the outworking of that faith. That Greek word pistis can be translated faith, but it'd probably be better translated faithfulness. But really what they're getting at is allegiance. The same word we give for anyone, like be allegiant, be faithful to what you're building here. You see, outside of my covenant with God, my most important covenant is with my wife. Now, if I just said, I believe I'm married. (laughs) But I never talk to her, never go visit her, never see her. Her life makes zero impact on me. Or maybe let's just say I only saw my wife once a week. Like we hung out for an hour and a half once a week. And after that, we kind of go our separate ways. Most people, most people, because we understand what marriage is, we'll be like, I don't know if you're married. I don't know what I would call that. <laughs> Friends? With wedding bands? Like, well, what are you? You understand as a married person, that covenant weighs on every component of your schedule. Yeah. When I was single, I get up and chase the sun. Just run. Now I wake up. Is it cool if I go chase the sun, sweetheart? <laughs> <laughs> Not that she got me on check. We, we work together as a team, but I want to be considerate. Maybe she's like, I've been out chasing the moon, and now you want to chase the sun? Someone got to watch the kids. You're like, all right, we'll, we'll figure it out. When I was single, I got up, man, ate whatever I wanted, never had to figure out what we were going to eat. I never had that challenge. Yeah. Now as a married man, like, what are we going to eat? That's, that becomes the epic 45-minute showdown. <laughs> we just walk around each other like, what are we going to eat? I throw some options, they get cut down. <laughs> it stains how I eat in a good way. 
my marriage. What do, what do anyone who knows me well, you know what I want to do for vacation? I want to watch some sports games, eat some chicken wings, chill, chill, chill. Maybe read some really good books. My wife, we want to, she wants to go to the park. She wants to run. She wants to hike. She wants to exercise on vacation. Like we're different. But you know what? We meet each other halfway. So when I say I'm married and I believe I'm married, it shows in my actions. When you say you believe in Jesus, does it show in your actions? Does it sting? This is what, when, when Nijigunte is talking about faithfulness, this is what it's supposed to mean. You as a follower of Jesus should show itself in your actions. Not just something you do on Sunday. So, this is the least dynamic diagram you ever see in the world. <laughs> I, 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 when I, I, it was whatever. I'm not going to tell you what time I was doing it, but I did it, right? And then, and then I looked online, and I was like, oh, well, let me see what other people have done. And I just saw these incredible diagrams, and I'm like, they got too much time on their hands. They need to spend more time praying. <laughs> now, nah, I'm hating on them. They were good people. I just, I just didn't get to it. I don't want to hate on anybody. <laughs> okay, so what is a kingdom? When Jesus walked in in Mark chapter uh, 1 and says the kingdom of God has come, and again, no one would have heard. I think sometimes in the first in the 21st century, now we hear kingdom of God, Jesus telling you the way to get to heaven. No one would have heard that. It would have get again. The closest thing comparison is, hey, I'm starting a new nation. Everyone would have understood what I meant by I'm starting a new nation. Like anyone in here does not understand what I mean by don't raise your hand. Starting a new nation. Everyone knows what I mean by that. A kingdom they knew it was going to be a rival to the present kingdom, whatever kingdom was in place. You see, the early church didn't struggle with a dualism the way we do currently. And what I mean by dualism, there's spiritual things and there's earthly things, and those two things stay apart. The, the early church combined those two realities and walked within that tension consistently. Because we struggle with dualism now, we have like things like the Sunday-only Christian, who like shows up on Sunday worships for an hour and a half, and then afterwards they, they take their faith in Jesus, put it away, and then they live according to whatever it is that they're doing. But the first century church really desired that every component of your life would be marked out by this covenant with Jesus. And, and I know some of you might be thinking, I'm speaking to my fellow skeptics, but Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. Pay attention to the key words. My kingdom is not of this world, but it is in this world. It's not of this world. It doesn't find its roots, its practices, its habits from this world. But it is in this world. Yeah. And that's very important. So what's, what's the aspects of any kingdom for the most part? They have a king. For the Christian, it's Jesus. You see, I gave you guys all the answers. So next week when I quiz you guys, you guys better get an A. Now, I'm not going to grade anyone. Jesus loves everyone in here. You already got an A. Covenant. The closest thing I could consider to a covenant for us is, would be the Pledge of Allegiance. But in, in, in most kingdoms, you had to pledge your fidelity to whatever kingdom you were going to join. And with, with Jesus, it's the covenant established by Jesus, enacted by us in baptism and remembered in communion. People. Rome, was one of the, um, Rome is one of the few examples, and, and, and the Greek Empire, that really welcome all people. Most kingdoms usually had to select people. But Roman and the Greek Empire said all people were welcome. And the kingdom of God is no different. Law. Rome had its, its laws and Jesus, his teachings. 
and really the rest of the Bible. Now, you wonder why I put an asterisk. That's, that's an important asterisk. As followers of Jesus, we follow Jesus. So, give you an example. Moses says, hey, let's go burn down the Canaanites. You might get fired up. You're reading Exodus, whatever. You're like, I'm going I'm to burn me some Canaanites. Jesus says, love your enemies. Who do you yield to and submit to? Jesus, if he's Lord. You tell Moses, you're not Lord. So I don't know what's up with this Canaanite stuff, but you got to figure it out. So that's really important. So we follow scripture, but we follow Jesus. Everything that points to Jesus, we yield to Jesus. And if any parts of scripture just feels like, man, it doesn't agree with who I see Jesus, meditate on it, study it more. But at the core of it, go back to Jesus. Because you at your confession said Jesus is Lord. And I don't want to sound controversial. You didn't say the Bible was Lord. You said Jesus was Lord. Land. Wherever Christians gather because of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a moving temple. All of you who made Jesus Lord, the Spirit dwells in you. You walk around with the very presence of God wherever you are. So Jesus' kingdom is transnational. So there's not one nation or people group that has the, the market on the kingdom of God. It's wherever the Holy Spirit resides, which is with believers. Yeah. You see, I want you to understand this. Let's go to John chapter 18. What they needed to emphasize in the first century was that this kingdom was not primarily earthly. It also had a spiritual reality. That they needed to emphasize that in the first century. What we need to emphasize now, I think in the 21st century, this kingdom is not primarily spiritual, but it also has an earthly manifestation to it. That there is something that's supposed to change here and now because of the kingdom of God. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. This is Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is like, why is this um, Jewish Galilean in front of me? And why am I, why is he on trial? What's going on here? Verse 33. Then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants will fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You said that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate understood something really clear about the accusations and what was going on here. He's like, I think they think you're a king. I think they think they're making you out to be someone. You're not just like this religious figure that we should all follow. You're you're like presenting yourself as something other than that. That's what's happening here. And Jesus does the song and dance with him and says, okay. But I wanted you to understand that people were understanding his movement as something that a king would do. Some, some would-be king would do, and he actually ended up becoming a king. Let's go to chapter um, 19 of the same book, John. John 19, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> it was a day of preparation for the Passover, John 19, verse 14. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. 
Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. They didn't say it like that. They probably said it more aggressive. Take him away. But I like, take him away, take him away. It just sounds like nicer. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Again, why am I sharing this example? Everyone is understanding that Jesus' ministry is that of a king. They're, like, they're not saying, oh, man, he's the religious leader or he's just someone trying to forgive sins. They completely understood the work of Jesus as someone trying to bring about a spiritual, not only a spiritual, but a physical kingdom. They understood it that way. And that's what the charges that would be brought against him. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. So this is post-resurrection. Jesus is now dead. He's been gone for some years. John 7, I mean, Acts 17, verse 6 through 7. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, is causing a little bit of trouble with the gospel. Verse 6. But when they did not find him there, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. <coughs> Even after Jesus rose from the dead, they did not go out of their way to fix the message and say, well, you know, we weren't really claiming Jesus to be a king. He's just a spiritual person. We're, we're like really like the Christians didn't clean up the message. They, they, they presented Jesus as a king that others thought would be a threat even to Caesar himself. And again, just to be clear. The threat was no, not even an iota of violence in there, in the threat. The threat was it was transforming people's lives. But it was no violence that the Christians practiced in the first three centuries. It was frowned upon any, any form of violence in the first three centuries of Christianity. So the census was that the Christians, the disciples, the apprentices of Jesus never overcorrected their accusers and said, hey, He's just a spiritual guy. This is just a spiritual reality. They understood and they welcomed the persecution of an earthly reality. So to be in Jesus' kingdom makes you an alien anywhere you inhabit as you bring the kingdom wherever you find yourself. That feeling, those of you, uh, I think a lot of us in here were born here in the States. Most of us don't know what it's like to feel like an alien, to feel like, man, I, I, this isn't my home. Those of you who've moved to different locations, even nationally, even though it could feel like yeah, Maine is completely different from Miami. Maine has IHOP. Miami does too. You're like, there's some commonality there, man. <laughs> Denny's is here. Denny's is there. BK is here. BK is there. The food, we all, when I say football, we all kind of understand what I'm talking about. No one says soccer here. Maybe Juan only. <laughs> But there, there's a commonality. I'm, not, I'm really not an alien here in that sense. Even if culturally the, the areas are different. But imagine yourself as a follower of Jesus saying, man, my ways and how I'm supposed to live is supposed to feel like at times I really don't fit in here. I really don't. The way I view love, the way I view forgiveness, the way I view mercy, the way I view hope, it's completely different. And we have to do that like Jesus. <clears throat> the body and bodies. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Private piety was never what Christianity was supposed to be. In a Christian nation, I I would argue we're in a post-Christian nation now, (coughs) it's easy to practice private piety. And just hope someone approaches you and be like, hey, I, I see you're like always calm. You got to be a Christian. That really doesn't happen unless you have a tattoo on your head that says I'm calm because I'm a Christian. <laughs> Our baptism <clears throat> initiates us as believers into a new citizenship, publicly declaring ourselves as members of this new covenant community and enlisting them, the new members of this community, to mission and the coming of the kingdom of God. Baptism gives us a tangible and a visible form to a community that stretches across history and the globe. Instead of signaling another commitment among many others, we may make baptism as the formation of a new people whose newness and togetherness explicitly relativizes prior um, stratifications and classification. This is from author Caitlin Chess. Our baptism is a witness that we're living in a different society. When you say Jesus, Lord, back then they would have like, you know, you're going to die. Like if we, you know how like we share a baptism, we all like, yeah, this is the best decision you could ever make. This is going to be great. There's always that one Christian who shares bad news at the baptism. This is going to be the hardest day for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) We got to have that guy there. If you're that person, I love you still. Come and share your bad news. But, you know, everyone else is like, yeah, this is the best thing ever. I was reading from Michael Green about the early Christian baptismal confessions. The, 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 the elder who would perform the baptism would pray like, God, protect him. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to lose family. He's going to lose a lot. But he's going to gain you. If we started sharing that at different baptisms, I don't know what that would do to other people witnessing potentially. He'd be like, I'm going to lose what? Lose fat What? Die maybe? Whoa, I didn't tell my mom that. (laughs) Tell your mom you might die. It's it's been recorded. You won't die. I don't know. We're in America. We're kind of safe, kind of. But what am I saying? Our baptism, that bonds me to people all over the world. All over the world. I share a deep covenant with the people who have made Jesus Lord in a way that I even share deeper than my actual blood. It bonds me all over the world. Those of you who've ever gone to another fellowship and you just walked over there and they just embraced you. Wow. I went to Atlanta, the, the church in North River. There was a brother, Jerome. He cooked me and another brother breakfast, gave us his extra car. He drove us around. He had his wife drop us goodies while we were on campus. Like, wow, nah, nah, that's not the treatment everywhere else. So and we just got to raise the bar of our discipleship. But I'm just pointing that one example out. And the last night I was at Jerome's house, Jerome, I said, Jerome, I can't remember his wife's name for the life of me. Anyway, I was like, Jerome, you're, you're, so, you're, so, you're such a servant. And then he leans in. I'm not a touchy person. You guys know me. He leans in. He grabs my hand. We're family. I'm like, dope. 
we are family. He's like, we, we, mo we both made Jesus Lord. I know the challenge, man. He's like, what's mine is yours. If you ever need money, call me. I might be careful, bro. I might spread the news. <laughs> I might give you a call. <laughs> be like, Jerome, can you hand me $1,000? <clears throat> I've never called him for that money. It'd be crazy. I think if I call him now, if he's doing well spiritually, he might give it to me. If he's not doing well, he might, bro, that's a different season. <laughs> but what am I saying? That embodied practice of me going in the water and that embodied practice that all of you went in the water, that bonds us in a way that nothing bonds us. Like, it, it just, we all consciously made the decision to follow Jesus. It's like we're in there together now. And so we bring the kingdom wherever we go, and we're, we're like united. We're going to look at um, Luke chapter 22. I love the, the communion that the disciples are having, and they're all together, and Jesus is getting ready to die, and he's sharing all this incredible stuff. And then in Luke 24 through 27 conversation breaks out. Now, part of the challenge is they probably just didn't really understand that Jesus was going to die. Because this would be like the most inappropriate thing to argue about as someone's about to die. 24 through 27. Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who, who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Our baptism is a witness of a transformed life and a transformed reality, our practice of taking communion together is a witness to a new way of doing things where none of us, if you think in here you're great, seek to be a servant. If you aspire to greatness, seek to be a servant. Our, our time together, when we, take, when we break the bread, it is transformative. It's supposed to be. Sometimes I think we could get into monotony. I go out to communion. As soon as, as soon as you take the bread, you're thinking, I got to run and go get my kids. What am I going to eat? Then you drink the cup. You're like, oh, that was sweet. And, but you really slow down. <clears throat> In receiving communion, we're re rehearsing a story about the values of the kingdom of God. Values that completely contradict the world around us. Nowhere, nowhere else will you go where they said, oh, the greatest is the last. The greatest needs to be the servant. Now, some companies have adopted that model, and they're wise to do it. But in a culture obsessed with hoarding power, the church needs to practice a symbol of strength and weakness. Communion is truly, if you understand it for what it is, it's truly one of the most political acts we do every week. Where we say, we're all even. I want to share this bread with you. I want to share this moment with you. I want to share this table with you. And if I think I'm more important than you, I need to serve you, and I want to give to you. You know, in communion, we all come together at the same table, no matter our economic status, our culture, or whatever. And we come, and we don't pass the bread anymore because we're trying to stay healthy, but we used to pass the bread. It's essentially 
relevant when you consider the context of one of the few descriptions of the early church. Their communion led to what we read in Acts chapter 2. The, the glad and sincere hearts, the breaking bread, the sharing of everything. That consistent practice leaned over into a non-forced way from the pulpit and from the teaching to be a people who shared everything together, regardless of where the people came from. Both of these practices are very important if we're going to embody the kingdom of God. We got to remember what our baptism is. Our baptism is Jesus, Lord, and nothing else. Not our spouse, not our nations, not anything else. And when we take communion together, that means we are serving an alternative reality where we all are equal at the foot of the cross, regardless of where we've come from or what we may believe politically. <clears throat> I'm setting this up because next week I'm going to call back to this consistently. I might share some criticisms on all political perspective. Um, Spectrum, and you might be offended. You might say, oh, Steve, he, he's paternalistic. He thinks he's better than I, I fall victim of this, too, and I'm going to share my own shortcomings with what I believe ideologically. But you might be tempted to say, well, who is he? I'm going to bring you back to who I serve, which is the same person you serve, Jesus. So this is going to be foundational for everything we talk about. I'm going to remind us of our baptism. I'm going to remind us of our communion, that we are together, even if we may not see eye to eye on every single thing. Let's uh, have a moment of reflection, and then we're going to pray for communion.